So today we're going to talk about Jesus at the right hand of God. The name of my teaching is Enthroned at the Right Hand of God. This idea of enthronement, Jesus's enthronement at God's right hand is fundamental to understanding Jesus's heavenly ministry. So let's look into what it means to be at God's right hand. What are we talking about? I want to go to Philippians chapter 2, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. And look in verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1, it says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and purpose, or one in Spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Wow, that's quite a statement, isn't it? That your attitude should be the same attitude that Christ had. It says in verse 6, who, being in the nature of God, that's an unfortunate translation. It's the form of God. And the idea behind this is that Jesus manifested the character, the works, the personality of God. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that he who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said. So Jesus was in the form of God, who, being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasp or to be snatched after. In other words, so Jesus did not seek to be equal with God. He did not grab after it as Satan had. It goes on in verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, in other words, if we desire the benefits of, a, of being united with Christ, his encouragement, uh, the comfort of his love and his fellowship, rather than being selfishly ambitious and vainly conceited, we should be like he is, which is what? Humble. Humble. And it's humble in the sense of being a servant, that we're serving. We're serving. It's not just about me. It's about taking care of other people and thinking of other people, okay? And this was the heart of Christ, especially in the sense of a sacrificial humility, that I'm willing to lay down my life in service, right? That's not about my career aspirations. It's about helping other people, that I'm willing to lay my life on the line for them. And that's not a difficult task when you see life as eternal. When you think that life is just that period of time that falls between your birth and your death, well, then, you know, you start hoarding it. But when you see that your life is eternal and that what you do here has eternal impact, eternal ramifications, then it's much easier to lay down your life in service, right? Because you have an end game. It was for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, he despised the shame. 
Okay, so look at verse eight. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God exalted him. So God exalts the humble. You humble yourself, God exalts you. You exalt yourself, and what happens? God will humble you. Jesus humbled himself, and God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that amazing? I just think that's great. God exalted Christ. He exalted him above every power in the universe. All right? Every power, every name that is named. Far too many Christians are preoccupied with the historical Christ of the four Gospels and know very little about the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ who sits at God's right hand. But this was the very Christ that Paul preached the Christ of the gospel of Christ, the risen, exalted, and ruling Christ who is enthroned at God's right hand and who rules with power and authority. And that's what we're going to look at today. So I want to look today at some scriptures that deal specifically with his enthronement at God's right hand. In ancient times, a person with a higher, highest uh, rank stood at the king's right side. Even today, a person may be called someone's right-hand man, right? He's a go-to person, somebody that you can go to to get the job done. Um, Every boss at work has a go-to person. I always have. Um, The right hand is significant of blessing. A lot of us can remember the story of Jacob. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament when Joseph brought his two sons in front of him, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. And Manasseh was the oldest. And so Joseph put Manasseh right in front of Jacob's right hand and put Ephraim in front of Jacob's left hand for the blessing. And what did Jacob do? He did this. Joseph said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not, that's not right. Manasseh's the oldest. He gets the blessing. Jacob said, I know what I'm doing. And he blessed Ephraim. All right. So the blessing was the blessing of the right hand. That's the idea there. In the culture, the right hand was a hand of blessing. The right hand is also significant of authority. We uh, can think of Joseph. Joseph was Pharaoh's go-to guy, right? He was his right-hand man. Pharaoh spoke to Joseph and said, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So that was Joseph. Joseph went from being a prisoner in a prison to being Pharaoh's right-hand man. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, Go ahead and turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. This is the most quoted passage in the Bible. Actually, I should say it's the most quoted passage in Scripture in the Bible. In Psalm 110, look in verse 1. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How about that? So sit at my right hand. There's blessing and there's authority there. And God is talking about putting all enemies under his feet. Verse two, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. 
the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in in the order of Melchizedek. Order of Melchizedek. We'll, we'll revisit this idea a little bit later. And this part here is coming up is addressed to the Lord Yahweh. The Lord is at your right hand. Speaking to the Lord, he's saying the Lord Jesus is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So the psalm is hearkening forward to Armageddon. Armageddon. Everybody know what Armageddon is? It's a battle. It's actually a campaign in Israel, and it's Jesus against the armies of the world, okay? And it's also hearkening forward to the whole millennial kingdom of Christ. The psalm also addresses Christ as a priest, okay? So not only is he sitting at God's right hand in authority, but he's also a priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the other order that priests uh, were of back in biblical times was the order of Aaron. That was the Levitical priesthood. Jesus came from a different priesthood, and we'll look at that today. So everybody take your Bibles and go to Daniel chapter 7, and look at verse 1. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. And he wrote down the substance of his dream, and Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came out of the sea. Okay, so you get this idea of these, these four beasts coming up, right, rising up out of the sea. Now, later in this passage, it reveals that these four beasts are actually four mighty kingdoms of men. All right, and the sea that it's talking about is not the ocean. It's the sea of the people of the world, populations of the world. So you have these four kingdoms that are rising up out of the populations of the world. And these four kingdoms are likened unto these beasts. Okay, look in verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. You know, this country talks a lot about, you know, oppression. Everybody's getting oppressed. I don't think the people of this country really understand what oppression is. This talks about a kingdom that will rise up and trample its people underfoot. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, when we're reading the Bible and we read about horns, in figurative language, um, you know, a prophetic language, we're dealing with um, authorities. A horn is significant of an authority. Verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up from among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. So this is kind of weird, right? You, you got your mindset of these horns, right, like an animal horn, and it's on top of the head of this beast, all, you know, ten horns, and then one horn rises up, and it uproots three other horns, okay, and it's a little horn. Um, it says, this horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully, and this word boastfully can be translated blasphemously, okay? So, 
in scripture, the horn, like I said, is significant of authority. And this small horn, this little horn that we're talking about here is actually what? The Antichrist. Okay. So you have these four kingdoms. These four kingdoms are rising up out of the population of the people. And on this fourth beast, he has these authorities, these different authorities. And then this other authority rises up and uproots some of those authorities, right? And then it's this small authority that starts speaking blasphemously against God, all right? Everybody on board with this? Now, verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So you get in your mind that the throne room is being set up, okay? You have thrones that are being set up, and then you have the main throne of the Ancient of Days, who is whom? God, Yahweh, right? This is Yahweh, okay? Now, a throne serves more than just being a seat for somebody to sit in, right? A throne is significant of um, varying degrees of presiding authority. And what we're talking about here in these thrones is the divine council, the notion of the divine council, that these thrones are set up, the main throne being God. He's the ancient of days. It goes on, it says, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. So this is the Godmobile. John Shanghai calls it God's chariot throne, okay? And the idea behind this Godmobile is that God, his throne can move from place to place. His rule is overall, right? It's not just in one province, it's overall. And you see these wheels show up where? Ezekiel. So that's where that shows up as well. And it's flaming, right? This flaming, this idea the throne is ablaze with fire. And the wheels are all ablaze. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Okay, so you have this flaming river leaving God and going to where? The lake of fire, which we read about in the book of Revelation, right? So you have this flaming river, thousands upon thousands attended him. That, uh, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. How about that? So you get this mind picture of this entire throne room, this court being seated, and God is just magnificent. You know, I think of Isaiah. We read it a couple of weeks ago where, you know, God, you know, was high and lifted up, and his train filled the entire throne room, right? And the seraphims were saying, holy, 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 right? So, it, and there was smoke. So you really get this picture in your mind. These are revelations that were given to men about this heavenly place. Verse 11, and I continue to watch because of the boastful or the blasphemous words, the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So this is the destruction of this kingdom. Okay. Verse 12, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. So these other three kingdoms continued on for a while, but they were toothless. They had no authority, okay? Verse 13, now here it is. In my vision that at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. How about this? So this is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and he is led into the presence of Yahweh. Okay. Everybody tracking with me? Verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when we read Philippians and we talk about how Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. Here it is. This is what's happening here. How about that? That's it. Now, I want to point out one thing here, and this is important, that the authority that he had was not inherent authority. That by virtue of being Jesus Christ, he just had authority over everybody. No, this authority was bestowed upon him by God. Okay? And I say that to make the distinctive point that Jesus Christ is not Yahweh. Yahweh is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who came before Yahweh, and Yahweh bestowed upon Jesus this authority, okay? It then says that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And we go, oh, no, only God can be worshipped, so Jesus must be God. No, <laughs> that's not how that works. This, is, this, this idea of worship, men get worshipped, and it means obeisance. It means deference. It means to laud somebody, that somebody does a great deed, and I go, you're awesome. That's the biblical sense, a sense of the word worship, okay? But it's not to be confused with the worship that is given to God alone. Let me make that a little clearer. We absolutely do praise our Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely, with our whole hearts, right? But God gets a worship that is separate and special to God. Does that make sense? Remember what we learned a couple of weeks ago about the Shema. What did the Shema say? Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. Okay? Very important here. It's very important. If you, you don't have to turn there, but remember in John chapter 4, 22, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he says to her, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. That is God's worship that is reserved to God alone. Okay, is that clear to everybody? And we can't get confused on that. Let's look at Stephen in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And we're going through and looking at this whole idea of Jesus at the right hand of God. So Stephen was hauled in front of the Sanhedrin and falsely accused. And Stephen came right back at him in absolute courage. So this man is standing before all these men and he was accused of blaspheming the temple. Right. And that was a problem because you're not supposed to be worshiping the temple. And they were. It was called temple worship. And Stephen came right back at him, and he gave him an entire dissertation of the whole Old Testament. 
And if you look in verse 51, chapter 751, he ends it up. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. How about that? He was, and that law is the Mosaic law, right? And he says, you have received this Mosaic law, but you have not obeyed it. Verse 54, it says, when they heard this, they were furious. And that's kind of an interesting thing there. <laughs> you know, when you speak the truth, even if it's bold and confronting, if you speak that to a humble person, what does a humble person do? He goes, oh, my goodness. I've sinned, right? I mean, it gets them right in the heart. But when you speak the truth to somebody who has a hard, calcified, self-righteous heart, what happens? That person becomes indignant and gnashes with their teeth. And this is how you can figure out the difference between the two. Oftentimes, there isn't a distinguishing feature. But when you start speaking the truth, boy, things happen. I always think of you know, the San, Han, Sanhedrin that we're talking about here. You had Nicodemus, right? And you had Joseph of Arimathea. These were two men who were part of this body of, of rulers in Israel, and they both were humble, and they both wanted to know more of the truth. And then you had these other men that we're reading about here who they, they well, here, let's read about it. It says they were furious in verse 54, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up in heaven and saw the glory of the Lord and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I've heard it taught that Jesus standing at the right hand of God meant that Jesus was fighting mad. Um, I don't necessarily doubt that. I don't know if that's what it's saying here. But it does say that he was standing at the right hand of God. Okay, He wasn't sitting in his throne. It goes on and says, verse 57, At this they covered their ears, yelling, at the top of their voice. How about that? I don't want to hear anything you have to say. And they're yelling at him, shut up, right? And they ran after him. They rushed at him. Verse 58, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, later to be named Paul. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Okay? That's just, it's very tragic um, in one sense, and it's inspiring in another. That for Stephen, his stand for God and his stand for the Lord Jesus Christ meant more to him than his life. And, you know, it's what I said. It's, it's a good thing for us to run that scenario through our minds once in a while. In a similar situation, would you be willing to die for Christ? It's a good question to ask. Turn to chapter 8 of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Yeah, I don't know much about Stephen. The, the scripture doesn't say a lot, doesn't define him, doesn't describe him, what he looks like. Um, but it does tell about his character, doesn't it? And he loved Jesus and that he was bold in him. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 32. Um, we all know this section. It says, he who did not spare his own son, talking about Yahweh, God, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Now listen to this. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. There's the high priest. That Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This goes all the way back to Psalm 110, right? He is a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, okay? He sits at the right hand of God. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Look in verse 23. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death has prevented them from continuing in office. Verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Okay, so do you see this? The idea here is is that under Aaron, under the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, under that priesthood that tended to that covenant, right? They had to have that intercession being done regularly. Why? Because the high priest would die in just his lifetime. He was a mortal man. He died. And then he had to be replaced with another high priest and another high priest and another high priest. Okay, and this is how it worked. What makes Jesus a distinctly different high priest? Well, he died and was raised from death. And it says that in the Bible that death no longer has dominion over him. Okay, in other words, Jesus lives for eternity. And it says In Psalm 110, he ever lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God as a high priest. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Verse 26, such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted from the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And this is this has always been just intriguing to me. And not only is Jesus the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice and he's also the king. Isn't that something? So Jesus offered himself, verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8, verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not men. This is the true tabernacle of heaven, the throne room, the true throne room of heaven. Okay, does that make sense, everybody? This is what we read about in Daniel chapter 7. It says, you know, and I remind you of what we read about in Isaiah chapter 6, where it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, right? The earth is full of his glory. Uh, Look at verse 3 here. It says, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, meaning in his earthly ministry, right? If he was alive and Jesus was alive in his earthly ministry, he would not be a priest, for there are already men to offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? 
That's why God was so specific. We'll read about this on how the tabernacle was supposed to be laid out and later on how the temple was to be laid out. Why? Because they were representative of what actually went on in heaven, what goes on in heaven. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And why? Because it represented heaven. That's why. Verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, meaning these other priests, as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. So this would be, you know, a section of scripture to share with your messianic Christian friends who are busy trying to shoehorn the Mosaic law into the epistles. And that's just not what this is all about. The whole thrust of Hebrews is a new and better covenant. And also keep in mind here that we are not a covenant people. The covenants were made with whom? Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, right? Well, I'm not of either. I'm of the one body of Christ, but I get the blessings of it. It goes on in verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant in the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when they took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling their covenant new, this covenant new, he has made the first one what? What's that word there? Obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. I don't know how it could be any clearer. And yet I dealt with an individual this week who was trying to convince me that the Mosaic law was still in, you know, what? It was still enacted. So fundamental to this idea of the new covenant is Jesus Christ as what? The high priest. And his priesthood is new and everlasting. He ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what he does. So this goes back to the question, what does Jesus do? He makes intercession for us, as well as doing a lot of other things. I just want you all to think about the liberation that we have in Christ to do God's work. I mean, it's pretty amazing that not relying on a, a man to go into the temple once a year and first atone for his own sins and then atone for mine. Jesus has no sins to atone for, and he spends all his time every day, every moment of every day, interceding for us. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty amazing. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. The heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ. What is it all about? He sits at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of he which called you 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. His power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. How about that? Far above rule and authority power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also the one to come, the millennial age, right? So Jesus Christ is above all principalities and powers now and in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills everything in every way. So Jesus ever sits at the right hand of God. He has he has got a ministry of the high priest. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And Jesus has been given authority over the church, right? And we're not just talking, you know, the local church with the pointy steeple. It's the church, the living church over the entire planet. And this includes humans and spiritual realms, humans and spiritual realms. Christ's authority is complete. He is above all principalities and powers and mights and dominions, every name that is named. Now, it's interesting that this idea of Christ, first of all, being the Son of God, and then being the Son of God seated at his right hand, is absolutely rejected by Islam. It's rejected by Islam, out of hand. They will not even you know, dignify a conversation about it. They absolutely refuse to believe this. And I think that that spiritually should indicate to us where Islam is. Does that make sense, everybody? You know, we have these Christian ecumenical councils who are wanting to get everybody together. You know, all the Buddhists and all the uh, Muslims and all the different sects of Christianity in one big international group hug. And it's nonsense. It's nonsense. My Bible talks about enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay? So if you have enemies and you have friends, right? I mean, you see my point there? Anybody who does not recognize, who categorically denies that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he rules with power over the church has missed the point. And that's not what we've been called to. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. I just love this section here. It says in verse 20, it says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? And that's a question we have to ask each other or ask ourselves and then ask each other often. You know, why do we find ourselves doing what we're told by this world? Verse 21, it says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these carnal rules, all these don'ts of the world. Verse 22, these are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and human teachings. How about that? How often do we submit to human commands and teachings and not to Christ? Verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And this is what false religion will give you. Why is Why do you have such a problem with, you know, pedophilia in the Roman Catholic priesthood. It's right here. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Isn't that something? I love that. Get your eyes upward. We become so wrapped up in the immediate. 
we need to get our eyes upward. Verse 2, set your minds on things above and not earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is a coming. That's right. That's right. God doesn't care for that much. Set your affections on things that are above, not things on this earth. And this includes all the appetites of the flesh, religiosity and pride. I was thinking you don't have to turn there. Uh, 1 John 2.15, uh, where it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes from the it comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives for pretty cool. And we're going to end up in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And look in verse 2. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How about that? Consider him who endured such opposition, King James says contradiction, such opposition from sinful man, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How about that? So the idea is Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He is our life. Our life is hid in the life of Christ. That as he is seated at God's right hand, we are assured the same place. And we need to set our affections on things that are above, not on things of this earth. The things of this earth are transitory. The things of God are eternal, right? And we're supposed to look to Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith. All right. So that's what I wanted to share today. And uh, let me finish up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that message. Thank you, Father, for the word that you gave us, that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of you, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Uh, we thank you that Jesus rules with great authority and great power, that, Father, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And, Father, we, uh, we are just humbled by this. What an what a awesome Lord and Savior he is. So we thank you for this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.